Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Bernie Sanders is surging with voters in New Hampshire, or is he? The polls say yes, but other data doesn't support the polling results. Also, endorsements from top Granite State Democrats are rolling in for Joe Biden. Will they make a difference? And have late starters Michael Bloomberg and Deval Patrick persuaded undecided voters to choose one of them? Our New Hampshire insiders are back. Later in the show, a year ago, a beloved Roxbury institution closed its doors, promising to come back. But many feared that was the end. But good news, the Haley House Bakery Cafe is back, refreshed and recommitted to its mission. But first, joining me in the studio, Arnie Arneson, former New Hampshire Democratic legislator and host of WNHN's The Attitude with Arnie Arneson. Hello, Arnie. Hey, how are you, Kelly? I'm great. Also with me, Paul Steinhauser, campaign reporter for Fox News Politics and the Concord Monitor. Hello, Paul. Kelly, great to join you again. I'm I'm so glad to have both of you because we're going to jump right in on the Bernie Sanders situation. Well, is it yes or no? Is he the top guy or not? What what say you? He's got the passion, that's for sure. Um, and, and, and again, the WBUR poll that came out that showed him going from, what was it, 14 or 15 percent in December of 2019 to 29 percent in 2020 in January is just an enormous jump. I want to remind everyone, though, that back in maybe December, end of November, people were still trying to process, you know, the oldest guy in the race just had a heart attack. <laughs> Will he survive this? So um, there may be a little bit of an explanation there for why he was at 14 and then jumped to 29. But I I do think what's interesting about those BUR numbers, and the numbers are different depending on the polls, but he and Biden are clearly in the top tier. They're fighting for, you know, who's on first, is that what I'm getting a sense of is is that the Bernie people are committed to Bernie. They are not switch hitting. They want him. They cannot be persuaded to go in a different direction. Not as much true with the Biden people. I see Biden people as being more willing to sort of consider someone else, maybe maybe an A.B. Klomachar, maybe a Mayor Pete. But uh, I do think that there is an interesting sort of element going on here. And uh, Bernie definitely has the enthusiasm. Now the question is, can he get enough warm bodies into the voting booth on Election Day? And I suspect he might be able to. Well, given everything that Arnie said and what's and what that polling data says, Paul, why is there some confusion about whether or not he is actually the top candidate right now? Yeah, because two days before that poll came out this week, you had another poll from uh, Suffolk University right. and uh, uh, the Boston Globe, which showed just the opposite. It showed an extremely close race with Sanders with a one point advantage, which is basically nothing uh, all tied up with uh, with Biden, with Warren and Buttigieg right nearby. One thing, so the polls are going to differ, but one thing is for sure, Bernie Sanders, the best thing that ever happened to him was that heart attack he suffered back exactly. in October because <laughs> he has surged nationally in the polls, but more importantly, in the early voting states, his 
his fundraising figures are out of control. He is raising so much money from small online grassroots donations. Uh, he he brought in around four million dollars uh, in the in the twenty four in the forty eight hours after the debate last week in Iowa. So there is an energy of, of there among his supporters. Uh, and as Arnie pointed out, and it's a great point, his supporters are extremely devoted to him. They're not going to go elsewhere. And on some that maybe we're looking at Warren have come home back to Bernie over the last couple months as Warren's uh, stances on Medicare for all, especially have upset some true believers on the left. So Bernie is in a great shape, in a great position. He's peaking at the right time, but he does have a ceiling, and that ceiling may come back to bite him eventually. Hmm. So a couple of things. Uh, when you say that they're, that his supporters aren't going anywhere, should he not prevail as the candidate, does that mean you end up with the Bernie bros, so-called last go-round, which they will not be persuaded to support anybody else? Uh, no. the, oh, okay. So no, we're not talking I'm not, about I'm, that. I'm going I'm to disabuse you of that. Mm-hmm. First of all, the number of Bernie bros that voted for Donald Trump or didn't show up was pretty small. I think the biggest story was the millions of people that voted for Barack Obama and then didn't show up at all in 2016. That's that's the, that's the real story. The story in 2020 is going to be uh, about who is uh, who are the nominees. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump had the highest negatives of any two presidential candidates ever. I think it was in Gallup or Pew history going into an election. So a lot of people either saw it as Tweedledum or Tweedledee. And in the state of Michigan, around 80,000 people didn't even vote for president. They actually showed up and they exercised the franchise, but they didn't pick a choice for president. What does that tell you? I think that if Bernie loses the primary, uh, I don't believe that people will actually stick it out because Donald Trump really is someone they want to change. And that is more important than their particular candidate winning. They see this as a a huge flaw going forward in this country. And I think you more often than not see progressives showing up and voting with the moderates because in the end, the change is critical. So, Arnie, you also uh, pointed out that this new um, documentary that Hillary Clinton is featured in, which actually doesn't come out until March, but clips of it are going around, where she is not complimentary of Bernie Sanders, says he's always been unpopular, he's, you know, uh, not done much uh, for... As much as he touts his record, he hasn't done much, really, uh, in his time in office. Uh, Bernie was asked about it afterwards, and he sort of blew it off and said, well, you know, sometimes my wife doesn't like me either, which is probably very smart on his part. But I'm wondering from YouTube uh, what you think about uh, the fact that of her comments and what impact it may have or not. Well, I I think the comments are, I mean, she she wants to be authentic. I, I want her not to talk. And the reason I say that is this, is that is that right now we do see a rise in the progressive voice within the Democratic Party. It isn't helpful for Hillary Clinton to trash that voice because we really are seeing someone who is bringing new people into the election uh, results. We know he's got a huge numbers with young people. He's actually number one and number two. Bernie and Biden are number one and number two nationally with African-American voters in this country. So I think it's not useful for her to trash him, especially because in the end, if he doesn't have friends in the United States Senate, big deal. You know where he has friends? With voters. Mm. That's what counts. And so I don't think it was helpful. And I think to a large extent, even people who are big supporters of Hillary Clinton were, please, please move on. We have to. So do you. It is amusing that two of the biggest stories this week surrounding the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination race 
involved Hillary Clinton, the one with Bernie Sanders. <laughs> yeah. And then you have Tulsi Gabbard, the congresswoman from Hawaii who was running, suing her over those comments that Hillary said back in October on a podcast that uh, Tulsi Gabbard may have been a Russian agent or at least helping the Russians out. Listen, Hillary Clinton likes to be in the well, she didn't call That's... her by name in that, we should say. Go no. ahead. Yeah. Go yes. Ahead. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> mm-hmm. But still, uh, she 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 made her, her comments known. Listen, Hillary Clinton wants to be part of the conversation. That's very clear. Uh, does this help or does this play into the Republican? playbook. Yes. Uh, I think Donald Trump is enjoying every time Hillary exactly. Clinton speaks out. Hmm. Um, and some people think that her comments, um, Arnie, I think you're among them, is ac- are actually helping Bernie. If the point was uh, her comments mm-hmm. were negative about Bernie, it's actually helping him. So we shall I, see. I think to a large extent mm-hmm. that that's, that's, that's part of the problem. Mm-hmm. But at, at this point, what we're really seeing now is people are kind of, I think they've moved past Hillary Clinton. They mm-hmm. kind of hear her speak and they roll her eyes and mm-hmm. they kind of move forward. And right now what we're really looking at is all these like rush of endorsements. And I will be honest with you, Callie, I think endorsements don't matter. There was an interesting comment by Governor Lynch when he initially came out and endorsed Joe Biden way, way early on. And uh, when someone asked him why did he do it, he said, because I, I support him. But I don't think that my endorsement is going to make any kind of significant difference in New Hampshire. This is the guy that's been the most elected governor in the state, that had the highest approval ratings. And even he was disabused at the idea that his endorsement would have a significant impact. Uh, well, you know, they're all endorsing. I don't think it'll matter going into November. Yeah, there were a spate of endorsements this week. But uh, as I tweeted out yesterday, let's go back to 2016. Hillary Clinton won the lion's share of endorsements exactly. in the state. And she lost it by Bernie, to Bernie Sanders by 22 points. So let's forget about endorsements. Well, before you forget about it, I just want to uh, talk a little bit about the sure. the volume of endorsements that went for Joe Biden. Note that we've been talking about Bernie Sanders as being mm-hmm. on the top of the polls. So why are all these, you know, people with some reputation and um, maybe some might re- view them as people who could be persuasive in getting you to rethink a candidate are coming out for Biden now? Yeah, well, simple. Uh, they want to beat Donald Trump, and they still think Joe Biden is the best uh, avenue to do that, the best candidate to do that. And I, I think that's one of the reasons you see a lot of these establishment figures, like a Billy Shaheen, the longtime uh, DNC committee member, who's also the husband of uh, Senator Gene Shaheen, coming out. You saw the uh, the progressive congressman, former congressman Paul Hodes, doing it, and a bunch of others. But there was one who didn't, uh, and she's been a member of the party forever. Former state party chair uh, Kathy Sullivan, who's now a DNC committee member, she endorsed. Warren this week. And which that was, was surprising. Kind of it was, yeah. uh, the, uh, her decision to do that, which was very interesting, because she's an institutional Democrat. She's what's called the Manchester cabal. Mm. And they really are the sort of the moderate new Democrats of the Democratic Party. What I also think is interesting is what sort of opened the floodgates, too, was the first congressional elected official to actually endorse a candidate was Annie McLean Custer. She is a congresswoman from the 2nd Congressional District. She came out and endorsed, uh, not only did she endorse Mayor Pete, but she became his national co-chair. And in a lot of ways that sort of almost liberated everyone who is, you know, in Washington and some of these sort of national figures to suddenly realize they needed to come out too. But she was the first one to sort of walk past that line. And that is a good pickup. You know, again, most endorsements really don't matter, but our congressional delegation here is all Democrat, but it's very small, just four members. And all female. All female. Oh, she, no, 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 used to be. And she may be the only one to endorse. Shaheen is not going to endorse. And it's, you know, we'll see what Maggie Hass and the other senator does. But that actually... That that endorsement from Custer for Buttigieg had a little bit of cachet. Well, I would say, particularly since she signed on to be his national campaign, uh, you know, and coming from New Hampshire, a place where, you know, he's really got to make a name, that, that to me had a lot of weight, even if people from outside the state may not know her name. 
Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. But within the state of New Hampshire, it's also interesting because Annie McLean Custer ran as a progressive, joined the Progressive Caucus when she got elected to Congress, and then six months after joining the Progressive Caucus, she quietly switched and became a new Democrat. So to a large extent, that's also part of the problem. You know, do you run with one theme and then do you become another when you get down to Washington? Mm-hmm. That also is somewhat problematic for Mayor Pete. But Mayor Pete is really packaging more like a young Joe Biden in some ways than he is like anything relating to Warren or Bernie. Mm. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are our New Hampshire insiders, Arnie Arneson of WNHN and Paul Steinhauser of Fox News. We're discussing the latest politicking in the Granite State. Let's go back to Elizabeth Warren. So you just mentioned an endorsement for Elizabeth Warren you found surprising. But um, for the most part, Paul, you're asking the question, is Elizabeth Warren fading? And that's despite a pretty um, big endorsement from The New York Times. Yeah. Uh, her and Klobuchar both getting that endorsement, uh, which got some pushback that why did The New York Times give it to two candidates and not one? That's a separate story. Listen, uh, Warren, though, compared to where she was in, say, September and October, uh, her movement is going the wrong way, right? Exactly. Her polling numbers have deteriorated not a lot but noticeable both nationally and, again, more importantly, in Iowa and New Hampshire, the first two states to hold contest in the nominating calendar, and her fundraising, which is another barometer we look at, right? Maybe not as important as polling, but still crucial. Her poll, uh, her fundraising numbers dipped in the fourth quarter, uh, the, f- the final three months of the year, uh, whereas Bernie Sanders surged. Biden also had an uptick as well. But I will say this, Callie, I've been to a bunch of her events over the last couple of weeks. The energy is still there. She is a masterful, masterful on the campaign trail, both in one-on-one with uh, with voters and also when she gives her stump speech. So there's still a lot of energy there, but some of the metrics are definitely not going her way. She has an excellent ground game, both in New Hampshire and in Iowa. You can't discount that. That's really important. But I will tell you what some people have said, and, and that's one of the reasons why they see a softening on the part of Elizabeth Warren. They think she's brilliant. They think she'll make maybe the best uh, president of the United States. What they question is her political skill set. Does she does she know how to respond effectively? Does she know when to change? Uh, how will she be effective against Donald Trump? And remember, this is really a Trump replacement election, and that really is the issue. Uh, one of the reasons why you see people going back to, to Bernie is that Elizabeth Warren, in the beginning of the campaign, had the great statement, I have a plan for that. I have a plan for that. What she never did was she never segued to the next line, which is the we line. The operative word in I have a plan for that is I. What you get with Bernie is we. And this ultimately is an election about we. And instead of realizing that she started right, but that she needed to sort of expand the conversation, she never did. Then she got caught up with the Medicare for All and her response there. What is so interesting, everyone, is that if you read Bernie's uh, plan, because remember he said, I wrote the damn bill, Mm -hmm. it turns out he has a four or or five-year segue before he gets to his Medicare for All. So here she was hurt by suggesting that she may have to have a stepping stone for Medicare for All. Bernie never commented on it, but if you actually read his bill, guess what? So does he. But yet she got tarnished by it, and he did not. Again, it's uh, his ability to sort of know how to play the politics better than her. I wonder, and I'd love for you two to respond to it. Um, I watched the New York Times, The Weekly, which is the video version of, you know, some of their internal decision making. And so they showed huge amounts of time spent with each candidate that they interviewed before they determined their endorsement, uh, eventually, as we've said, to Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar. In the conversation about Elizabeth Warren 
after she left was a lot of back and forth about um, she feels like she's lecturing, which is something that I don't I still don't get just sticks to her everywhere she goes. And then, uh, in truth, one of the young women or one of the women on the editorial board said, well, isn't that because uh, most men respond to how she presents herself in that way? And that was acknowledged, but but it keeps coming up. And I wonder if now that we're getting down to narrowing, that has made some impact in a way that you can't really calculate, but it's there. Um, uh, I w- I'll start with you, Paul, because... Um, it was a guy that brought it up, and then another woman responded, and then they all talked about it. <laughs> it's a great point. It, it is a great point, and it's funny how things like this—not you know, not not even talking about issues or right. or major jabs or gaffes on the campaign trail, but but things like this really resonate with voters and stick with voters and help them make their decisions. So, so it's a great point you bring up. Well, I'm going to go back to what I just said, though, Callie. Remember what I said is that she didn't learn to switch from Mm. the I have a plan for that for something that has more of a we sound? Mm -hmm. When you say I have a plan for that, it feels a little bit more like I am lecturing to you. I am the professor to you. I know the answers. I'm here to teach you the answers because I control the information. That was where I think she made a mistake. And that's one of the reasons why you heard that conversation happening at The New York Times. Yes, it's also a problem for how women are perceived. You know, when we offer leadership, what do they hear? You know, it's not necessarily the same as when you hear men, you know, in quote, offering their leadership. But I do think that that is a political decision on her part. I think it was a mistake. What we know about Bernie from the get-go, from even when he ran against Hillary Clinton, what was the book? Our revolution. Hmm. What were the ads? It was always we and seeing thousands of people in the crowd. And the problem when you look at Elizabeth is you see her on the stage talking about my plan, I. And in the end, that seems a bit professorial. It also seems to not necessarily embrace the idea that this is going to take all of us to actually achieve. I was with Sanders over the weekend as he campaigned in Exeter. Over a thousand people at the high school, by the way. So a lot of energy there. But he was making the point that Arnie just just hit on. He was telling the crowd, I'm going to be stuck in, in D.C. at the at the impeachment trial. And he said, this campaign's always been about us, not me. Exactly. And this is what I really need you exactly. guys the most. I need you out there campaigning on behalf of our revolution. Us mm-hmm. are. Yeah. Great points, Arnie. Yeah. All right. Um, there are some other people in this campaign who's... <laughs> there are, yes. <laughs> I know. Uh, aside from even before we get to the Michael Bennetts, who, who is still in the campaign, there are a couple of uh, late entrants who have made quite a big splash. Um, one of them is Michael Bloomberg, and the other is the former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick. Before we talk about them and what impact they may or may not be having, I want to play a bit of both of their ads, which have just been all over the place now. So let's first hear from one of Michael Bloomberg's campaign ads. Mike Bloomberg started as a middle-class kid who had to work his way through college, then built a business from a single room to a global entity, creating tens of thousands of good-paying jobs along the way. He could have stopped there. But when New York suffered the terrible tragedy of 9-11, he took charge, becoming a three-term mayor who brought a city back from the ashes and brought back jobs and hope with it. But now he sees a different kind of menace coming from Washington. So there's no stopping here. All right. Well, these ads are everywhere, uh, it seems to me. I can't turn around without seeing one, of course. As we know, Michael Bloomberg is funding um, uh, much of this, uh, much of his campaign, and he can't afford to do so. Um, What impact is that having in New Hampshire? 
You know, it's funny. Bloomberg is not campaigning in the early voting states, including New Hampshire. He's skipping them. He got in very late at the end of November, and he's concentrating instead on the delegate-rich states that start voting on Super Tuesday in early March. One of those states is Massachusetts, of course, and so we in most of New Hampshire is in the Boston media market, so we're seeing the Bloomberg ads over and over and over again. They are having an effect. Look, if you look at national polling, and that's really – forget about the New Hampshire poll because he's not con- not concentrating here. Nationally, his numbers are getting up there in the upper single digits. Uh, you know, if you got that kind of money, he's already spent – Arnie uh, and Callie, he's spent already a quarter of a billion dollars. He's topped $250 wow. million in just two months. So, yeah, it's going to make, make make a difference. Now, Deval Patrick obviously doesn't have that kind of money, but he has put together enough to go up with ads in New Hampshire. Plus, there's a super PAC, an independent outside group that's backing him, that's supporting him, that's also up with ads now running here in New Hampshire. So his message is getting out. I was with Deval Patrick the other day, and I asked him about the polls. Because here in New Hampshire, he's still right around 1%. Exactly. He's been in the race for about two and a half months now. And he discounted the polls. Uh, you know, he and Michael Bennett and Tulsi Gabbard, to a degree, are doing it the old-fashioned way. They're doing retail politicking here in New Hampshire, house parties, small town halls, those kind of events. We'll see if that kind of that kind of thing still works in 2020. Let me let me, let me me play Deval's ad, uh, Arnie, and then you can weigh in on both. So here is uh, from one of Deval Patrick's campaign ads. Some people say it's too late for me to run for president. You know, growing up on the south side of Chicago, people told me then what I couldn't do. I've been an underdog my whole life, and I've never let that stop me. I'm Deval Patrick, and I approve this message because it's not too late to save the American dream. All right. Paul, you weighed in uh, first on the Bloomberg ad and its impact or not in uh, New Hampshire. Um, What do you say about uh, Deval Patrick's ad? And then I'll have Arnie jump in on both. He's got a compelling story, right, from where he grew up on the south side of Chicago from a very humble upbringing to where he is now. And he's always been the underdog, especially in his two gubernator- in his first gubernatorial race down in, uh, in Massachusetts. And I think that's a compelling message that a lot of voters here in New Hampshire like. But he did get in late. He says it's later, not too late. We'll see. There's still a lot of undecided voters in New Hampshire. You look at the latest polling and it indicates that there are a lot of voters who may have made up their mind but are willing to change their minds before February 11th. That's what Deval Patrick, that's what Michael Bennett are banking on. There are 33 people on the ballot, Callie. Just let me remind you, there are going to be 33 people on the ballot. People don't realize all you have to do is like write a check for $1,000 and you too can be on the ballot Mm. running for president in the state of New Hampshire. Um, I think it's too late. I think it's too late. I think people are exhausted. They're trying to figure out who, again, the whole idea is electability. The whole idea is having some sort of relationship with the candidate. Remember, this is New Hampshire where you go and you you kick the tires and you go to house parties and and there just hasn't been enough time to sort of, you know, create a connection with him. And unlike Bloomberg, believe it or not, Mayor Bloomberg walks into any living room with an ad and you know who Michael Bloomberg is. You know it because you know about his time as mayor of New York. You know it because he has a huge media empire called Bloomberg News. And uh, Deval Patrick has to do a lot more heavy lifting just for people to remember, yes, we're close to Massachusetts, but that doesn't mean we remember when he was governor of Massachusetts. So um, two things. Deval raised uh, $2.2 million in six weeks, according to his campaign, um, which is kind of impressive. Um, and then a piece that our reporters did here at WGBH, um, one Adam Riley, just really focused on his interacting with some of the New Hampshire folks. And a couple of them were 
hey, this is a guy I think I might consider more than whoever I was considering before. So I know that's very small, and but it is part of the retail politics that is very successful in New Hampshire. But it's just, in the end, too, too small, I hear you both saying. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely too small. All right. And, and when you look at when you look at some of the real quality candidates that didn't make it through this campaign and had to drop out because we started with so many people over over 20 candidates, you begin to realize not only did we lose quality over the course of the last couple of months, but when you're looking at the sprint to the end, when there's such a cacophony of ads and money and endorsements, uh, he just disappears. You know, since we last talked, Callie, mm -hmm. take Cory Booker, the senator from New Jersey. Just this guy, hands down, the best orator on the campaign trail. Yes, yes. Uh, you go to his events. I went to so many of them. You talk to voters afterward, and they're just mesmerized by him, captivated by Thank him. You. But for what, some reason, he just didn't resonate in the polling. He couldn't raise the money needed to compete with the the big candidates, and he dropped out a few weeks ago. It is it is so tough. You can have you can you can be the goods, uh, but sometimes it just doesn't work out. So where do all of those people go, the Kamala Harris supporters, the Cory Bookers, all the people who dropped out? Where Do you all have a sense of where they are now tracking no. for the candidates still in the campaign? No, no. I Actually, speaking of Cory Booker, I had a, uh, a big supporter of Cory Booker. Literally, he's grieving still that Cory dropped out. He's mm -hmm. still grieving. He has no idea where he is going. And again, what I think is so interesting about this race is that it really isn't going to come down to whether you're a moderate or progressive. It's going to come down to what you think will produce the number of votes you need in 2020 to defeat Donald Trump. And people don't know it. I've seen people literally sitting there going, do I think Bernie can do it because he can bring young people in? Do I think Biden can do it because maybe he'll convince some of those Republicans that he really is the better choice against Donald Trump? He's the more stable one. We know him, but yet Bernie's going to produce the kind of change and respond to what young people are looking for, which is urgency and hope. So it really is so fascinating as people are trying to process because they don't know what it means in an era of Trump, how to produce votes in 2020. I will say, as we record this on, on, on Friday morning, though, just moments, uh, minutes ago, one of Cory Booker's biggest supporters, uh, the very cerebral state senator, David Waters, he just endorsed Deval Patrick, which was Patrick's first endorsement. Wow. So, you know, it, it is interesting where some of these, you know, uh, surrogates, but also voters go and end up. But but again, at the end of the day, that's not going to dictate how the results come on February 11th. All right. Now, I do want to uh, go back to where we started with Bloomberg and ask this question, which is uh, the some conversation about his not orchestrating a write-in campaign, but others may be. Could he get write-ins, um, enough significant write-ins in New Hampshire, even though he's not on the ballot there? I think Michael Bloomberg is doing he's, – he's masterful. Not only does he have billions of dollars and hired probably the best consultants and lobbyists in the country, but uh, he is having an event on Monday, uh, Callie. Do you know where the event is? Mm -mm. It's in Burlington, Vermont. Burlington, Vermont. Now, we know that Vermont and Massachusetts are, you know, on Super Tuesday, but he could buy Vermont, you know, and the <laughs> fact that he's going to Burlington, which is the birthing place of Bernie Sanders, I think is absolutely hilarious. And and at the same time, we have seen write-ins in the past. I don't think he wants to write in to win. I think he wants to write in if there's a possibility of a write-in campaign for him. And it may not be because he even encourages it just because there are so many ads around him and people are still trying to decide where to go. I think what he's trying to say is, I don't even need to be on the ballot, 
Look at what I am offering people. I'm offering a choice, a choice they think is electable in 2020. And uh, we've seen write-ins happen before. Remember when Ralph Nader in 1992 ran as a write-in? He had a pencil that said, none of the above. That was what his pencil said in 1992. Uh, This is a much more sophisticated campaign. And to a large extent, I think Mayor Bloomberg understands that by doing those ads in Massachusetts and Vermont, he actually infiltrates the conversation in New Hampshire. And because we have so many people who are undeclared who can pick up either a Republican ticket or a Democratic ticket, what will be fascinating for me is to see how many write-ins are on the Republican side, let Mm -hmm. alone potentially on the Democratic side. Hmm. Here's Bloomberg's strategy. He's hoping that one of two things, that no one candidate comes out of the first four states, the early voting states, Iowa, New Hampshire, then Nevada and South Carolina. Nobody comes out with a lot of momentum that you maybe have three or four winners. Or he's hoping that Bernie Sanders comes out of the early voting states as the person on top. Uh, and yes. he will be the savior for the moderate and centrist wing of the Democratic Party. Or for scenario two and scenario one, he will be waiting with no nobody having a lot of momentum coming out of the early voting states, and he'll be waiting in the Super Tuesday states. Uh, this strategy has never worked before, but I've never seen a candidate with that amount of money before. So stay tuned. All right, Paul Steinhauser, I have another question for you, and that is this. From all the conversation we've had in this moment— It really feels like even though Bernie may be doing quite well, surging, as some say, um, other folks have made some some inroads with endorsements or not, whether that matters, that the bottom line is that for the first time in a long time, it feels like New Hampshire people are really not decided. Like, that's the biggest number of people. They're just not decided. Yeah. And it's not just New Hampshire. It's also Iowa. That's what it makes it so exciting. We're, we're, we're just a little over a week out from uh, from Iowa. We're, what, what, two, two and a half weeks out from New Hampshire. And gosh, Kelly, we have no idea what's going to happen. That's what makes this so wild. And let me just say something else, Kelly. There, 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 there are two candidates who have stick-to-itiveness in the sense that they're not – no one's going to leave them. That's the Bernie people and the Andrew Yang people. Those mm. people are committed to their candidates. Everybody else could possibly be persuaded. Obviously, in a caucus, there's an even greater ability to persuade because in a caucus, you get into a big room and it's very public and people can actually persuade you to go to their corner or this corner. The persuadability is going to be in your brain when you walk in. But I know a lot of people who are going in undecided. I posted on Facebook uh, this week, you know, how are you deciding? How are you processing? Do endorsements matter? No. Here's what they said. They're going to be looking at the results in Iowa, and that's going to help them as they look at New Hampshire. They're also going to be looking at what the polling numbers are going to say Mm. as they try to make that decision. So it's fascinating. Iowa is going to have an impact on New Hampshire, but Iowa, too, like New Hampshire, is still undecided. Only in Iowa, they get to actually do the persuadability because of the nature of the caucus. That doesn't happen in New Hampshire. I should like to point out that uh, very popular comedian Dave Chappelle endorsed Andrew Yang. I don't know. What do you think? That may matter. <laughs> you know, you go to a Yang event and it's it's fun. It's He's, incredible. There's energy. The guy has got some interesting things to say. Um, and he's, give him credit, he was the longest of longest of long shots when he jumped in the race a year and a half ago. And now he's a solid mid-tier contender trying to make it to the top tier. 
Well, and I think Andrew Yang and, frankly, Deval Patrick are running for some sort of position within the administration, assuming a Democrat wins. And mm. that's really what you see. And I hear that over and over again. People are not only committed to Andrew Yang, but one of the reasons why they're voting for him is they want that the nominee to pay attention to him because they really would like to see him in the administration. I've heard that over and over again. That's another reason for their support. They say, you know what, he may not have an election resume, but he has a real, they think, financial and credibility resume, and they'd like to see him within the administration. Well, in closing out this conversation, I'd like you to to address the surrogates who have to necessarily take over for the senators who are running and are off the trail in New Hampshire in these critical moments because they have to be in Washington uh, as a part of the impeachment trial. Yeah, but that's, they're, that's what they're forced to do right now, the four senators. Uh, as we record this, Ashley Judd is in New Hampshire right. uh, campaigning on behalf of Elizabeth Warren. Amy Klobuchar's supporters uh, uh, just the other day, both at the State House here in New Hampshire and at the one in Iowa, had news conferences to get the message out. So, you know, this is what the candidates, uh, those four senators, since they're going to be in D.C. six days a week, are doing right now. They only get one day uh, off to campaign in the early voting states. So you have to rely on your supporters and your surrogates. It's good, but it doesn't be, it, it's never as good as the real thing. But Paul, do you, did they have flashier surrogates because of the circumstances? Because <laughs> you're mentioning Ashley Judd, for example. Yeah, you know, you, you are seeing some actors and actresses uh, out there on behalf of, of the candidates, uh, but you're also seeing politicians. You know, Joe Biden this weekend is going to be, after he's here uh, the, uh, early in the weekend, he goes to Iowa. So in his stead, you're going to see f- uh, former Secretary of State John Kerry from your former senator uh, campaigning. I don't know if he's flashy, but you're going to see some big-time <laughs> politicians as well. Former Governor Shumlin of, of Vermont. Again, not so flashy, but uh, whatever whatever, whatever it does. Whatever. But here, let me just say something, though. I mean, yes, we have the candidates that are sort of stuck in Washington because of the impeachment. And then you've got, you know, the, the field seems open for Mayor Pete as well as for Joe Biden. But they're going to be spending a hell of a lot of time in Iowa. Let me just tell you right now. <laughs> yeah. If you're going to triage your time, five days in Iowa, one day in New Hampshire. And again, as I mentioned before, how are people going to be processing going into the New Hampshire primary? They are going to be looking at results in Iowa. So guess what? If you have to put your time and effort in and physically be somewhere, that's where you're going to be. So I should note that the Iowa caucuses are on February 3rd, and that's eight days before the New Hampshire primary, the first in the nation. And I want to thank both of you for joining me for this, once again, insightful conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you. Arnie Arneson is a former New Hampshire Democratic legislator and host of WNHN's The Attitude with Arnie Arneson. Paul Steinhauser is a campaign reporter for Fox News Politics and the Concord Monitor. Coming up for 15 years, the Haley House Bakery Cafe served Roxbury with the philosophy of food with a purpose and the power of community. So early last year, patrons were shocked when the popular spot announced it was temporarily closing its doors. Would it really come back? Now, after a year-long hiatus, the nonprofit restaurant and community space is back, refreshed and revitalized. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm 
I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. In January of last year, the Roxbury-based Haley House Bakery Cafe announced it would shutter its doors, but temporarily, with a planned reopening later. Customers feared the Haley House Cafe would become another in the growing list of Boston restaurant closings. But the combination cafe and community space bucked that trend. Now the new and improved Haley House Bakery Cafe is gearing up for its grand reopening next month. Joining me in the studio to discuss this exciting transition, Bing Broderick, Executive Director of Haley House. Welcome, Bing. Thanks, Callie. Great to be here. <laughs> I'm glad to have you. Misha Thomas, General Manager of the Haley House Bakery Cafe. Welcome, Misha. Thank you very much for having us. I'm glad to have you. And John Lara, catering and delivery driver for the Haley House Bakery Cafe. Hi, John. Hey, Kelly. Thanks for having us. I'm glad to have all of you. And it is exciting to have you all back. Congratulations. I just want to say from the beginning, I was one of those doubting Thomases. I was like, oh, no, here we go. Another great institution taken away from us because... I just didn't believe, didn't have enough faith, Bing. <laughs> but, well, but you hung in there. <laughs> we, we, we knew that we had to do something, mm-hmm. and we knew that we played an important role in the community. And, and rather than let the same thing happen to us that had happened to many others, we said, let's, let's step back, let's take some time and think about how we can do what we're doing better. And in October, Misha came on board, and it's been a great ride. We landed on uh, an approach called open book management, uh, which is an approach to managing largely restaurants, but other things as well, uh, where everyone on the staff understands the finances at any given moment and the role that they can play in improving the business. And uh, it has been a very positive experience for us as a team, and we're really excited to be reopening. Well, let's step back from a lot of what you just said, because one of the things that comes through is that Haley House Bakery Cafe was never just about food. So it had a larger mission. So we want to let people understand what the larger mission was and why in taking a moment out was really you had to think long term in, in different ways than, than even a restaurant that was on the brink of, of closing would have to. It was it was broader than that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, our, our motto is that we believe in food and the power of community. And so food and community have always been really central. For the last uh, 10 years, we've run a job training program for men and women coming out of prison. Uh, we run after school programs in health, nutrition and culinary arts. And we have been a arts and culture community hub with evening programming and all of that. So all of those pieces were a part of it. And when we first opened in 2005, at that time, Dudley Square had very little in the way of food offerings. McDonald's Express had just closed. Subway closed shortly after. Um, So at that time, it was a different role. Now there are numerous restaurants in Dudley. So um, the role we play today is a little different. Um, But we never made money as a business, and uh, we always covered our costs with fundraising and and a few other areas where we um, were able to take money from one thing and put it in another. But uh, we knew increasingly we were losing money. And before it impacted other parts of our organization, our housing, our soup kitchen, we decided it was time to really step back and, and rethink how we did things. And that's where we are now. 
Okay. Well, Misha, um, and that's my guest being Broderick. He's the executive director of Haley House. Misha Thomas, you are the new general manager of the Haley House Bakery Cafe. And we should say we're talking about the Bakery Cafe's broader mission, which is very important. But at the center of it, when I would go there, the food was good. <laughs> so, And that drew a lot of people. And so now you were uh, came in in charge of rethinking the menu, and uh, keeping perhaps some traditional pieces, and, and then doing all new stuff. So what's that been like? Uh, first of all, why did you decide to take on the mission? Let's start there. <laughs> oh, wow. There, um, <laughs> so Haley House and, and Dudley, now Nubian Square in general, as a, as a very sacred kind of personal space for me. Um, I come from a family that was very much at the forefront of, of many uh, community activist uh, initiatives in Boston. Um, one of my, my paternal uncle was actually uh, Cornell Eaton. He was the founder for the MECO program. So mm. as a whole, it's uh, something that's near and dear to my heart to see that neighborhood strive, to see the people of this community have something um, where they see themselves reflected uh, across the board. So that's that's one of the reasons I took the position. Also, just having a, a background in the industry, you really get to see the disparities, how, how folks are treated, the, the hard, intense hours that people are working, um, the, the kind of lack of, of transparency that management tends to have for other staff. So getting to that place with myself and really reflecting on, you know, what I, the changes that I needed to see in order for me to be happy in the industry, the changes that I, that I needed to see in Boston in order for me to be happy here as a city, and then noticing that this position had opened up, it, it kind of just all made sense at the right time. And you come with a you know great food background. You were working at a place not too far away before you came to Haley House Bakery Cafe, and that's the South End Buttery, which some people may know. Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure. We um. I would. I would actually listen to WGBH on my way to work quite often. So I would. It wouldn't surprise me that some of my old regulars are, are listening to this. And so uh, now you're in the position. You come over. Everything is being refreshed, as Bing has said. You're taking a look at everything. How did you approach, let me look at this menu and see what I want to do? Well, uh, one of the first things that we did was pull together all of the old menus, looking at um, starting with the catering menu, which is something that has been sustaining Haley House, uh, the cafe bakery area, since it's, 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 um, since it's closing. So starting with what we already had in-house, we first thought about how can we reuse these things, uh, what are some old favorites, and then looked back at past menus and saw, you know, um, what are the revenue streams like? What were what were sales like? And what did people maybe think was a favorite that actually wasn't doing too well? How can we oh, re-envision this mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. add some new additions that reflect, you know, different cultures that are in our area as well? Um, Give me an example. Like what what's reflecting a different culture in your area that wasn't uh, available on the menu before? So right now we have a uh, we have a red sauce on the. It's a modular menu. So. Red sauce is one of the main choices in place of harissa, which has been there historically for a very, very long time. Similar spices just in terms of the heat um, that's going into the sauce itself. But the history and the tradition behind the red sauce that we are offering is out of the Nigerian style of, mm. you know, bases and stews. So introducing that to the menu kind of gave us um, just a little bit more layer mm, to what it mm -hmm, is that we're doing. Mm -hmm. We've also added a chimichurri, which is out of Uruguay. Uh, we have some South Asian style curries that were already on the menu, but we re revamped that a little bit. Um, we've added wild rice, which is something that my family 
has loved for years, but mine too. Coconut wild rice. <laughs> oh, so it's got kind of a little bit of a Caribbean American twist on that. Like the kids would say, a little flavor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah a little some some. So, so uh, putting these things together, um, a little bit of kind of just what I love to eat at home. What I know other people around me love to eat at home, you know, even in being from the area, you you go to the, the corner store, you go to, you know, um, your favorite spot and you see pasalitos, you see uh, patties, you see like the little things that you want to grab and go. So we've put our empanadas back on the, the cafe menu, too. You can get those two to I think it's like a two for six dollars and pair those with any one of our sauces. So using what we have, but then adding other things that mm -hmm. maybe, you know, you want when you go sit down somewhere that has free Wi-Fi, you know? Yes. <laughs> and one of the things that it should be said uh, is that um, Haley House Bakery Cafe was always front and center with a lot of vegetarian options mm. and a lot of healthy options for people. That was, you know, that was on trend before it was on trend at the cafe. You could always get that. And we must not forget the cookies. <laughs> oh, cookies, cookies are not going on anywhere. The other end, we have to have the cookies. <laughs> so I just want to make sure everybody knew those cookies are still there. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. All right. Uh, well, that's my guest, Misha Thomas. She's general manager of the Haley House Bakery Cafe, and she's been revamping that menu. It sounds delicious. John Lara, catering and delivery driver for Haley House. Tell me how long you've worked at Haley House Bakery Cafe and what drew you there? Um, first, I want to say thank you, Kelly, for having us here in this show, and we appreciate this space to, to let your listeners know what the Haley House Cafe is because it's, like you said in the beginning it's much more than just a, a food spot in the cafe um, I've been at the Haley House for like over five years now and um, for me Haley House has been like my safe haven you know it's been a place where I've had the opportunity to strive in the community um, a little bit of history on, on, on me is that I um like my parent like my mother she's a Colombian immigrant so she 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 tried to do the best she could with us when we was younger but I ended up steering in the wrong path and that ultimately led me to be in a prison and I was incarcerated for over 14 years in federal prison so when I came home when I came to Boston like I had no job training I had no work skills like basically I just was out here just trying to like find myself you know and um being out in a halfway house um right by by Huntington Ave I was, it was hard for me because at first, like I said, like I've lost my family because I was in prison. They passed away while I was inside. And um, like I just kept on getting the door shut down because I had no job history, because I had a criminal record. You know, I, w I wasn't able to find employment. So it was getting hard. It was getting hard and I was getting frustrated. Well, um, at the halfway house I was at, I remember two guys that was in the halfway house with me. They used to always come back with these giant chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> and I just remember just always waiting for them to come back so I can get a giant chocolate chip cookie. And I used to ask them, like, where you guys work at? Like, you know, and they used to tell me, oh, we work at a bakery at Dudley. And so I always kept that in my mind, the bakery and the Dudley. I asked them, are they hiring? They go, they're not hiring. We're full right now. They used to tell me. So I'm like, all right, I'll just wait my turn. So a little bit down the line. Unfortunately, they ended up going back to prison. So at that precise moment, I kind of figured there had to be two job openings available there. So I, I rushed to, to the Dudley to, to find this cafe. And as soon as I walked into this cafe, like the energy there, Cali, was like something that I can't even explain. Like I felt so welcomed when I was in there. Very positive. Very positive. Mm -hmm. the, the vibe, like everybody just um, talking to each other and laughing. Like you felt at home there. And I remember going in there, and I remember the, the person at the register just looked at me. He goes, are you here for the, for the tech program? I said, no, I'm, I'm here trying to apply for a job. He goes, okay. And the manager came out, and actually the manager came out and explained to me what, 
what was going on at the cafe, which it was at that time was that the transition employment program. Like, mind you, I didn't know what that was. I did not go over there. I just went there to get a job. And ultimately, me being a part of that tech program ultimately, like, saved my life. I can honestly say that. And um, just being a member of this organization that is not just about food. It's about helping people coming into reentry. It's about hope, helping the homeless. It's about helping inner city youth, giving them the space to learn how to cook. It's just a whole bunch of different elements that the Haley House has to offer. Not only that, affordable housing. Mm. And I want to say that I'm a part of all that. Like, thanks to the Haley House, I was telling this story the other day. Like, I remember me being in the halfway house and walking through Back Bay, walking through the South End at the Brownstones and just wishing. I'm like, man, I wish I could live here one day. I used to tell myself that all the time. And today, I'm proud to say that I do live in one of those Brownstones because of the Haley House. So, like, the Haley House for me was when it closed, it was something personal. Right. All right. That's my guest, John Lara, who's catering and delivery driver uh, for the Haley House Bakery Cafe. And Bing, I want to just emphasize something that John brought up, which is about how your dollar is actually uh, uh, goes two ways uh, when you when you go to the Haley House because of what he just described. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it definitely from what, you know, as John says, when you when you spend money mm-hmm. with us, you're you're providing job. You know, there there were times when we were you know, losing a little bit of money, but we were providing a lot of jobs. So we knew the value in that. And and people who support us, you know, not only by coming to the cafe, but but catering, especially catering um, is the largest part of our business and the, and the most important in terms of supporting the, 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 the operation. Um, and so um, in, in all of that, you can feel good about the money you spend, you know. Well, um, First, let me just remind people that uh, that I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and my guests are you, being Broderick, Misha Thomas, and John Lara of the Haley House Bakery Cafe, and we're discussing the cafe's upcoming grand reopening after its year-long hiatus. Um, one of the things to uh, mention, because you alluded to it earlier, was the pressures in the community as other food places came and went. So both had an impact on on your survival. Now, how do you feel, why do you feel that you are better equipped to meet that, that those pressures? Because it, it, you, it, the, your whole um, a vibe right now is that, hey, we're ready, we're, we're here, and we did the thinking that uh, puts us in a place to be sort of be stable. Well, I think that one thing that we did was we worked as a team, really, our whole staff really worked and was invested in understanding what went wrong and how how to write it. And uh, and so, you know, we are we are looking at we have a much deeper understanding of our food costs, of our labor costs and how um, scheduling and things like that are a central part of um, how we can get to break even. Mm-hmm. And um, and everybody understands that, so that also makes a big difference. Is there anything, any part of your community offerings that you offered in the past that you ha- you've had to um, put to the side as a result of a, the revamp? Or well, I think there are certainly menu items where we were probably spending more on ingredients than we were charging. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we always have tried to have things on the menu that were more accessible. Um, and we we continue to do that, but we are, we probably have eliminated a, a lot of the menu items that are that were um, too expensive. Too expensive, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm, exactly. Mm-hmm. So you've been doing. I know the grand opening is next month, um, which is February first, Saturday. But you have a soft launch going on for the last what week or so? How, Misha, how long? How long? Right. It's it's been mm-hmm. uh, almost exactly a week. Mm-hmm. And what are folks saying when they come through the doors? <laughs> 
Well, there's a big surprise in store for folks that um, haven't been in just yet. So I've gotten a lot of great feedback about the decor, which was actually done by a local um, designer, Kristen Simone. Um, folks love the food. Folks love the food. I've I've gotten the most beautiful reactions from the people that were looking for something that they saw still there. Mm. I've also had great reactions from folks that tried something new and it was delicious. It's it's kind of um, so many things that are a natural fit for the menu made their way back there. But then the ability to kind of tweak things and make them what you want and express yourself creatively um, through the modular format has allowed people to try ingredients that they might have not had at Haley House before. And did you say you did say that you tweaked the catering menu as well? To, slightly, uh-huh. slightly, somewhat. I think, um, well, through the rethink process, um, evaluating cost of goods and evaluating, mm-hmm. you know, what exactly goes into producing uh, the things that we produce. Things have changed in terms of price. Things have changed in terms of portion size. We've also um, done a, a good amount of work as far as uh, consistency. So. Oh, that's very important. Um, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, in, in, in regards to catering specifically, not too much has changed. It's more more of the infrastructure around it. Uh, some of the cafe items have made their way onto the catering menu because we've gotten great reviews about it, wild rice specifically. Um, so we'll be interested to see uh, how, how other folks feel about that. Um, but in general, catering has been uh, as sturdy as ever. How does it feel to be... Um, the good news story, because in the last, um, gosh, uh, even months, and we just heard uh, recently that Middle East restaurant um, and um, uh, what's been a club is up for sale. So when I say you are bucking a trend, you are bucking a trend. You know, we, we have all, those of us who enjoy uh, some, many of the wonderful offer, food offerings in Boston have just become accustomed to, oh no. Uh, so this this must just feel Fabulous, <laughs> Misha, to be a part of the upswing. <laughs> it, it, you know, it's it's an interesting place to be. Um, I have definitely seen and has felt that uh, on on many levels for restaurants that I I you know frequented throughout the years, and it's it's interesting. And I think that um, just emotionally too, having worked at neighborhood restaurants before and and having been with owners and, and uh, managers that, that are constantly looking at how to create that to then move to a place that already has so much of that and a tiny floor plan. It's kind of like the opposite <laughs> from what I've dealt with in the past. So I think that we are in a really great space um, in in every sense of that, any, any sense that that can be taken in. And, and absolutely, yeah, we can, I think we can, I know we can do this. Mm-hmm. We, we, are, we have the people, we have the product, we have the location, we have the vibe, we have the love. So um, I'm, I'm excited to see what happens February 1st. And you're coming back, um, uh, John, at a time when now it's Nubian Squares. So it's sort of a new, a new community. It's a, it's a refreshing, I guess, of the name of the space. People are feeling, wow, um, we've just... Uh, responded to wanting to have a new name for to to designate this community, so 
uh, as Misha said, emotionally, how does it feel for the people greeting you saying, we're so glad you're back? It feels good. Like, yeah. everybody used to tell me when we were shut down, like, man, Roxbury needs Haley House. Like, why <laughs> Why is it closed? Like, that was, the, that was the vibe. Everybody used to say, now that we're opening, everybody's like, yes, like, this is what the community needs because it's, it's, like I said, it's a place for the community, you know, especially in the Roxbury, Dorchester area that everybody knows us around. Like, I, I when I drive around in the van all over the city, all I get is people honking on me and I'm thinking, what did I do wrong? And they just pull up to me, they, hey, we love you guys. We love the Haley House. When you guys are opening back up, that's been my the feedback that I've gotten on the streets of Boston since we've been shut down. So I know the community's happy. I know everybody's happy that we're going to get the relaunch. And like I said, I just want everybody to understand that the Haiti House is just much more than just a cafe, you know. And we're for the community. We're for the people. And we just want everybody to can just come support us because it's for a good cause. And being same for you emotionally. I mean, it's just a it's a, it's a bit of a roller coaster to to come close to know. Uh, you know, you knew what the real deal was behind, and what 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 it was going to take to even have a chance of survival. Yeah, I think what John is speaking to here also just the sense of of community support and co- community um, really being a part of the feeling a part of the cafe. Um, one thing that that we we had a lot of people come up to us after we went on hiatus saying, how can we help as individuals? Mm-hmm. And it led to us starting a program calling called um, Friends of Haley House Bakery Cafe. Oh, what's that about? Well, mm-hmm. basically people are able to pay a certain amount and, you know, they get a mug and they get a, um, a, a shopping bag, but they really get to support what they what they really believe in at the Haley House Bakery Cafe. Oh, all right. So do they have, are they meeting there? I mean, it's, it's just a loose group. It's, it's not a, a loose group okay, of people. Right, it's okay. a way, you know, it, it, we... We have we've had you know people who so have supported us for years and supported the general operation, but um, but that we've, we're finding that the people who have joined the Friends of Haley House Bakery Cafe are more connected to the cafe mm. than the overall organization and and are really more invested in it and and really want to put their dollars toward that and that's sort of how that all came about. So, are you hearing from folks um, who are looking to you to model how they might? rethink if they're feeling a little tenuous about on the food side because as we've said you know your your operation is bigger than just the food side but on the food side that's it's not looking good in Boston right. i mean it's it's bad news for a lot of restaurants um surely we have new ones opening but a lot have closed and a lot that we thought were doing well you know so are you hearing from folks wanting to have some you know advice some counsel trying to model after you what, what's happening well this is you know this is the 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 public announcement of our relaunch is pretty recent and i expect that we will be hearing mm-hmm. from some people like that um you know we were very fortunate to work with a group called rethink restaurants uh and rethink restaurants really pioneered the open book management um concept in boston and uh, and I, I think that there's a lot of demand for the work that they're doing in that for that same reason. Okay. Well, congratulations. I'm happy to have my cookies. I'll be looking forward (laughs) to settling myself down over there for some good coffee and breakfast. That's usually when I would make my way over there. And um, I'm just happy that something that's been so foundational uh, in that uh, area of of the city is back again. Thank you. Thank you so much. We hope to see you. Yeah, we look Uh, forward to welcoming you. Oh, of course. Bing Broderick is the executive director of Haley House. Misha Thomas is the new general manager of the Haley House Bakery Cafe. And John Lara is catering and delivery driver for the Haley House Bakery Cafe. 
Well, that's it for this week's show. We're on the web at WGBH.org, News Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of WGBH, produced by Francisca Monahan and engineered by Dave Goodman. Melissa Rosales is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.